we need to make our product as low cost as possible so that the cost per ton of CO2 reduced, which is really the way that ultimately customers uh, will be thinking about this. What's the lowest cost pathway to reduce my emissions, but in a effective and permanent way. So when, when you switch to eJet, you're permanently eliminating that uh, piece of your operations that used to be running on, on fossil fuels. Welcome to Sustainability in the Air, the world's first podcast dedicated to sustainable aviation. I'm your host, Shashank Nigam, the CEO of Simply Flying. Every Thursday, I have important conversations with top aviation executives, technology entrepreneurs, and policymakers helping aviation take climate action. Conversations that help separate the signal from the noise. Whether you are a frequent flyer or an airline executive, if you care about sustainability or simply love traveling, welcome aboard. My guest today is Nicholas Flanders, the co-founder and CEO of 12. 12 is making sustainable aviation fuel out of thin air. This is not the first time they're doing this. They have turned thin air into sunglasses, washing detergent, even car parts. Now they are making sustainable aviation fuel. They now have just broken ground on a production facility in Washington state, something Senator Andy Billig and I spoke about on this podcast recently as well. You may enjoy that episode. So what is it that makes Nicholas so excited about making sustainable aviation fuel, e-fuels specifically? Let's hear it from Nicholas himself. Nicholas, welcome to the show. I wonder if we could start by you giving an introduction to yourself. What led you from working at McKinsey, sounds like a very prestigious, cushy job, to co-founding 12 in 2015? Great, sure. Thanks for having me, Shashank. Nice to, nice to be here. Um, so I really wanted to start a clean tech company. Um, I've always had a passion for the intersection of energy and environment. And so um, actually, when I was working at McKinsey, I was in their clean tech practice, um, which was a great uh, initial way to start my career. Uh, but ultimately, I wanted to create something new and uh, was really fortunate that when I went to grad school at Stanford, I met my co-founders, Kendra and Natasha, who were uh, researching CO2 electrocatalysis. So really the core science behind what we're doing to turn CO2 into new products. And so the three of us teamed up to create a, a company around that technology uh, that could integrate into industry and turn emissions into valuable products. What is CO2 catalysis? <laughs> yeah, it's the process of splitting apart CO2 using electricity. And why an application towards aviation in particular? So aviation is one of the difficult to decarbonize sectors. Uh, the energy density that you need to take a long flight, so across the country or across the ocean, um, really you need a, a liquid fuel to do that. Um, you'll have battery electric pl flights for short haul. Uh, you'll likely have hydrogen flights for short and medium haul, but really going long distances for a very long time, we're going to need liquid fuels. And so making a liquid fuel from CO2 and water that's compatible with existing engines is a great way to decarbonize the aviation industry. And our technology allows you to make fuel from CO2 and water in an efficient and scalable way. So that's why we've targeted that application. 
Okay, so let's let's go through the applications, right? So you say you you can it, you claim that you're a carbon transformation company specifically that makes uh, products essentially out of thin air. How do you make products out of air, and what can you make out of it? Sure. So the when we're saying that we're making products from air, there's specific things in the air that we're using uh, to to make these products. So CO two um, is the key thing that we're using. So the CO two we break it apart. And we also start with take water, which we also break apart. And both of those things we break apart using electricity. And then our catalysts recombine the elements to make new products that are normally made from fossil fuels. So carbon transformation is the process of transforming the CO2 molecule into a more useful form. And so we make building blocks for products like fuels, chemicals, and materials that are currently made from fossil fuels. Interesting. So it's a fossil fuel substitution technology. That's exactly right. And I believe while I was researching for the interview and my team was helping me, you've, you've turned air into sunglasses, washing detergent, car parts. That's rather a wide range, isn't it? How, t- tell us about how those came about. How do you decide what to make? Sure. So the thing that unifies all of those applications is all of those things are made from oil today. And they're actually all made from uh, similar initial starting points. So you start by refining oil into some really basic building blocks. And then from there, um, you know, there's a whole existing industry to turn those building blocks into laundry detergent or sunglasses. And so what we're doing at 12 is we're substituting that very early step in the supply chain. So instead of those initial building blocks made from oil that then become this whole platform of products, we make those building blocks from CO2 and water. So at 12, we don't actually have to make the laundry detergent or make the sunglasses. We make the ingredients to the plastic and sunglasses or the ingredients in, in laundry detergents. That's why you can it, see so many different products. That's interesting. Now, going back to my original question, how do you choose what to make? If you can make anything that uses oil from French fries to washing detergent, how do you decide to make washing detergent and sunglasses? Yeah, so the... Um, the building blocks that we're making, they uh, can be transformed into all of those different materials. So it's kind of easy from a technology perspective. We just have to make this one type of material, starting material, and then that can go the rest of the way. So then it's really choosing where do we want to, which customers do we want to talk to about using that starting material instead. And so our goal is really to introduce whole categories that people are really familiar with in their everyday life. So doing your laundry or putting on sunglasses, those were important ways for us to introduce this concept of carbon transformation into things that are really tangible so people can see that, hey, there actually is a way that I in my individual life can start to make an impact on climate. There's a lot of climate don'ts out there, things not to do, and sometimes it can be difficult to figure out what you should do. So the idea is that with, uh, we call them CO2-made products, it's actually a decision you can make. You can still buy your favorite brands, but if they're enabled through carbon transformation, they'll have a much lower CO2 footprint than they have in the past. So that's that's the idea, and that's how we pick our initial flagship products. I love it. I love to focus on familiarity and climate do's rather than climate don'ts. It's, it's such a subtle thing, but I think it's very important. It, it gets you far, uh, especially in terms of market penetration. Now, of course, this um, podcast is about aviation and making aviation sustainable. You, of course, are best known for making SAF or sustainable aviation fuel. How did that journey come about? And and I wonder if this is similar or different to Air Company, who I'm sure you're familiar with, who moved from products like vodka and perfume to jet fuel. 
So our, our sustainable aviation fuel is called E-Jet, and it's uh, made entirely from CO2 and water, and it is ASTM compliant, which means um, that it can be used as a drop-in fuel in up to a 50-50 blend um, in any existing uh, jet engine aircraft. And uh, our first customer for that was the U.S. Air Force. So uh, in partnership with them, we made our first E-Jet. Um, they tested it, did those ASTM tests, and that was in toward the end of 2021. Um, and at that point, we announced that we made this product in partnership with the Air Force. And then pretty quickly after that, attracted our first commercial partners. So uh, you may have seen we have a partnership with Alaska Airlines and Microsoft. Uh, we also have a partnership with Shopify uh, to decarbonize shipping on their platform uh, by, by air freight. And then we're building our first e-jet plant now in the state of Washington, and that'll come online in 2024. So let's dig into this a little bit more. Of course, we know of your deep partnership with your Seattle-based partners. Um, how does that come about? What role does everyone play? You're, of course, producing and supplying the fuel, but then there's an airline, there's a large corporate. What are the different parties doing? Yeah, so we're producing the fuel. Um, and then the fuel goes to Alaska Airlines for their operations. And Microsoft does a lot of business travel on Alaska Airlines. So they're able to, uh, by participating through what's called the scope three carbon credits, um, they're able to reduce the emissions of business travel, for example, for their employees when they take flights on Alaska. So that's how the three-way partnership works. Who ultimately pays for this? Is this Alaska Airlines buying fuel from you and then Microsoft ensuring, like, how does that work? Uh, yeah, ultimately, it's um, the fuel goes to Alaska Airlines, and then they have their uh, corporate customers like Microsoft, who will pay mm. for the CO two emissions reduction. But that's a it's a sharing. Got it. And compare this with Shopify. I'm sure you're not selling fuel to Shopify. That's right. So for Shopify, the fuel will go to a cargo carrier, for example. And is that someone like DHL or FedEx for shipping? It'd be, we have yeah, we haven't announced our cargo partners, but it would be that kind of company exactly. Got it. But having Shopify working with you, I'm guessing, allows you to then lock in a cargo partner. Yeah, and it's a similar um, approach that you'll see on the product side, where you, you mentioned earlier, kind of the laundry detergent and the sunglasses. So by having brands, uh, corporate partners, kind of pulling the demand through, um, that allows us to then work with the upstream chemical companies who are turning those building blocks into the laundry detergent ingredients or the sunglasses plastic. So it's Got a very it. similar thing. We want to build out the whole supply chain all the way from the producer like us to the converter, uh, which would be the intermediate player or the airline, um, and then ultimately the corporate customer. So it's actually a whole supply chain. And that ultimately translates to the end customer as well, uh, wanting to have a more sustainable option. This is very interesting because I don't think I'm familiar with an ExxonMobil or a Chevron working to make laundry detergent, even though they're, you know, building, well, they're doing the building blocks, which is oil uh, right now as well. Um, you, of course, uh, recently broke ground on a production facility in Washington State. Uh, right. Tell us a little about that and what volumes do you hope to produce from this plant and, and by when? Yeah, so the uh, plant is located in Moses Lake, Washington. Um, it's under construction now. We broke ground in July um, and have had some really wonderful support from the state of Washington. So uh, the, our local state representatives were there. The state senator was there, the governor of Washington, Governor Inslee. Um, so uh, just really exciting. The facility itself is actually, a, it's called a brownfield site. So it's an old industrial facility. It was a beet processing plant. And we're now transforming that site into an e-jet plant. 
Um, so it'll take CO2, water, and renewable electricity. It'll turn that into eJet, which will then uh, deliver into uh, airport infrastructure uh, within the state of Washington. And uh, in terms of volume, so ultimately at that site, um, the plant, the target is to go to over a million gallons per year of production. The initial phase will be tens of thousands of gallons a year, um, and that starts in 2024. So tens of thousands in 2024. When do you hit? When do you aim to get to a million? So the expansion phase, it depends on we're looking at some uh, things around upgrading the site, getting additional power to the site. So, um, but near term is the goal. Um, but the focus right now is just getting that initial initial phase set up. Just digging a bit deeper into what was the thinking behind a plant like this. You're, of course, using electricity to split these atoms, right? If you go to a country like Germany, where much of the power is still coal-based, that's not going to be clean electricity. If you go to a Canadian province like British Columbia, it is clean electricity. What's the mix in Washington state? Is it green and clean electricity that's coming to you from renewable sources? Or do you have a mix of traditional oil and gas and coal uh, coming in as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a very green electricity mix. And the specific site where we're located is 100% hydropowered. Um, and you're right, when we're looking at building out a e-jet facility, uh, we look very carefully at the electricity mix available or the access to renewable power projects that we can purchase electricity from in order to have the maximum reduction in CO2 emissions. We can actually get to over 90% reduction versus fossil jet A um, when we're using green electricity. Wow, 90% is significant because the figure I've heard typically for SAF is about 80% or so. I recently um, spoke with Senator Andy Billick from Washington State. He's a big fan uh, of yours. And we also, he's my first senator on the podcast as well, uh, who's, who's appearing on the podcast. He was very excited about the incentives that are being offered by Washington State to attract companies uh, like yours to the state. What was the key for you to locate in Washington as opposed to, let's say, California or Illinois? So for us, uh, it's really the electricity is a really important part, right? Ultimately, that's the kind of key driver. We're, we're taking CO2 and we're using electricity to transform it into to useful products. So having access to low-cost green power is really important. Um, and then Washington is also um, creating a sustainable aviation fuel incentive program uh, where there's additional uh, incentives per gallon that's produced uh, that makes it an attractive state. We also saw great local talent. Um, for operating the plant. Um, and of course, there's a, you know, a lot of aviation industry, aerospace industry, and then our key first customers were there as well in terms of Alaska and Microsoft. By the time you are live, will it be a sizable portion of Alaska's fuel needs, especially now that they have bought Hawaiian, that you aim to provide them uh, as well? That's our ultimate goal, uh, but we'll need to build lots of uh, production capacity to meet a significant part of Alaska's demand, and certainly even more than that to have an impact on the aviation sector at large. For example, even if we were making a billion gallons a year, that would only be 1% of global aviation fuel demand. Wow. And you're starting with a million. So I think let's let's just start small and be humble uh, with our humble beginnings. Um, it's great to know that a lot of your energy sources are renewable. I also recently had Professor Susan Becken uh, who on, on the show who co-authored a report that's saying that aviation's 
uh, SAF means could use up to 9% of the world's renewable energy. So how can e-fuels, which of course have the advantage of not using crop land, be made more efficient? So there, when, if you look at the kind of renewable future, kind of a sustainable economy in the future, it will really be underpinned by a lot of renewable power. So uh, for electric vehicles, for electrifying homes in terms of appliances and heating, um, for industry, so switching to hydrogen, for example, and steel manufacturing, um, for the amount of new AI and data center processing that's happening, and for uh, fuel production. So um, kind of switching to e-fuels for aviation is just one piece of what the amount of green power that we'll need in the future. So that's going to be a huge area of investment for the planet is making a lot of additional green power um, to, to, to support all of the, the entire energy and carbon transition. So um, in terms of making it more efficient, that's something that we at 12 are continually working on um, our core catalysis technology, making it more efficient. Uh, and I'm sure, and other players are doing that as well. Um, ultimately though, there's a, you know, a thermodynamic limit to, you, you have to put some electricity in to, to turn CO2. We're basically doing reverse combustion, right? Your CO2 and water come out when you burn fuel. We're taking CO2 and water and turning them back into fuel. So you have to put energy in. Um, so that's where, uh, kind of co-developing lots of green electricity with projects like eJet, uh, ultimately is going to be something we're doing. It's similar to what you see. With data centers, for example, a lot of the big tech companies also have their own wind and solar projects to supply power to the data centers they're using. So you'll, I think you'll see something similar in the future. Very interesting. I love how you explain it, that we are just reversing this combustion process. So you have to put energy in rather than using energy. Uh, still staying on this point, I know the IRA in the U.S. has been a huge boost for sustainable aviation fuel and other sustainability developments. But the U.S. currently does not differentiate between the feedstock, whereas in Europe there is a significant preference for e-fuels and there's a pathway with the refuel EU. In the U.S., though, it can be a corn farmer in Iowa uh, who is uh, you know, ultimately using its feedstock to make sustainable aviation fuel. How do you differentiate? And is it a... Is it a good thing or a bad thing that, you know, that there is no differentiation here? So there are some incentives that differentiate based on the depth of carbon reduction. So what's called the CI or carbon intensity score. So the lower the CI you, score you have, the more incentives you'll get. So from that perspective, because we have such a significant CI uh, reduction over 90%, we will get um, some benefit for that. Uh, in terms of our fuel. But ultimately, what it means is uh, we need to make our product as low cost as possible so that the cost per ton of CO2 reduced, which is really the way that ultimately customers uh, will be thinking about this, what's the lowest cost pathway to reduce my emissions, but in an effective and permanent way. So when when you switch to eJet, you're permanently eliminating that uh, piece of your operations that used to be running on, on fossil fuels. Um, our, our goal is to get down the cost curve and offer as, as competitive a price as possible. Right. That's, that's really good. Staying on cost, what does it cost right now for the e-jet fuel compared to typical jet A versus uh, a SAF that's made from corn? Sure. So our pricing isn't something that we share publicly, but initially it'll be more expensive than what you see for fossil jet A. Uh, that's typical for new technologies as you start scaling, as in, you know, 
fossil jet fuel, there's 100 billion gallons a year produced, um, and we're starting at a much smaller scale. But ultimately, we can be quite competitive, uh, both with alternative SAF pathways and even approaching um, fossil jet fuel costs. I, I hear you, and I know where you're coming from. It's a new technology, and costs will be higher. Volumes are not high enough. I was recently in a meeting with the new CEO of Etihad Airways, who is Brazilian, and he made a very interesting comment. And he said, in Brazil, we've had e-fuels, or not e-fuels, uh, SAF for cars, or bio-petrol and biodiesel for ages and decades because they have a lot of sugarcane waste. And it's almost always cheaper than the normal petrol that they use or normal gas they use. So he, he made an offhand comment that I, I will wait until it's cheaper than uh, Jet A. And some of us scoffed at that comment. But you know what? He's seen it work, uh, see, seen it work with cars in Brazil. So why not? You've, of course, recently signed a partnership with Etihad. Given that your facility is in Seattle, how do you even get SAF to Etihad in Abu Dhabi? Or do you have plans to build some facilities there? So uh, with in international airline partners, they have flights departing the U.S. as well. So um, it makes a lot of sense for us. We can build our production facilities in the U.S. and supply fuel to them for departures, say, from Los Angeles to Abu Dhabi, as an example, for Etihad. Long term, we absolutely will build plants all across the world. Uh, there's a lot of locations uh, globally that will be really favorable in terms of low-cost green electricity. So that'll be one of the things that informs where we expand to next. But our goal is to build multiple plants in the U.S. first, really get that learning curve, create something replicable, and then expand internationally. Where do you find cheap green electricity? I'm curious now. <laughs> Sure. So um, examples would be speak, staying on, on Etihad in the Middle East. There's really cheap solar. And one that people don't know about as much is actually there's really cheap wind as well. There's actually some areas in the Middle East that have really low cost wind power. Or if you look in Australia, for example, really low cost solar, Chile, low cost wind. So um, maybe some of the lesser known locations. That's very interesting. And up until you can get to a global scale in terms of facilities, have you considered or are you using book and claim methods for sustainable aviation fuel as well? For us, we're focused on uh, producing in the U.S. and then delivering to specific airport locations. So it'll be um, traceable in that way. Okay. And getting into the nitty gritty, how do you deliver SAF to an airport? Is it Does anything need to change in the current infrastructure? Do you have a pipeline? Do you have a truck? Something else? So what's great is there's a huge industry that already moves jet fuel around. Um, and so we'll partner with those existing uh, suppliers um, and partner with them on the blending. So the SAF, uh, the e-jet the that we make gets blended with conventional jet fuel uh, and then is then delivered into the airport infrastructure. But we can partner with existing players for that part. Right. I'm, I'm curious now on the personal side, uh, Nicholas, how long has it been since you started 12? We started the company in 2016. And how's the journey been? I mean, this is your entrepreneurial journey versus working with McKinsey before you joined Stanford. What have been some of the biggest challenges you've had to overcome or something unexpected that you thought, oh my God, where, where is this coming from? So what's been unique about the journey at 12 is uh, you know, we had, we've, we've invented this whole technology uh, from the beginning. And so... Uh, it wasn't just about finding a market and then deploying a solution. We'd actually create this new electrochemistry. Then we had to create a device around it. And we had to continuously improve 
the efficiency and performance of the process that we can introduce something entirely new and create a totally new industry. So if you think about the life cycle of the company, that means our first few years are really invention and development mode. Uh, very much uh, a technology development effort, uh, very heavily oriented toward the, the science and engineering. And that, that will always be a, a key core to 12 is continually working on that uh, core science so that we can keep improving the energy efficiency. But now recently over time, we've um, started to move into a development and deployment and scaling mode. Um, so growing the team, uh, ad adding folks who've you know built jet fuel plants before, uh, who've uh, done large construction projects, who've done mass manufacturing before. So that's kind of the evolution of the company um, since founding to now, where starting next year, you'll be actually be able to take a flight on fuel made through our CO2 electrolysis technology. So that, that feels really satisfying to have gone through that journey over a seven-year period. It's been a lot of hard work um, and a lot of contributions from uh, some, some, some really motivated employees that we're lucky to have. That's very interesting. Um, I love that you're getting to commercialization now and we'll soon be able to see the product. During that invention phase, which I'm guessing lasted really long, what got you and your two co-founders, what kept you motivated? Well, we knew that if we could make this work, the impact would be tremendous. So that was the core motivation was let's create something where the revenue is directly linked to the impact. Like the more product we make, the more CO2 impact that we'll have. Um, so creating something core like that, that was very motivating, right? That the mission is a directly linked to the business model. Uh, and so then it was just a question of, okay, can, can we make it, can we make it good enough, fast enough? And we were rational about it. So each year we'd set certain goals. We'd actually go back to campus, campus. We'd meet at the same cafe at Stanford each year and say, look at how well we did. Did we feel like we were on pace? Was it worth continuing to go? And, and each time the answer was an enthusiastic yes. Um, but you know, there was no, guarantee that this would work at the beginning. Um, and so it's really been the, the snowball growing over time as we've continued to make progress, expand, get customers, more partners and more funding. Moreover, when you started, I'm guessing there was no IRA. <laughs> That's right. There was the, the whole groundswell that we are experiencing in the last few months was not there from a policy framework perspective. Did you have early commercial success that allowed you to continue going or was there significant government or academic support? So uh, ultimately, you know, we, we didn't start this company with the IRA, which means that we always had a vision of having this be a cost competitive product, which still is the case. The IRA is um, an incredible accelerant. It means we can build much larger plants sooner and get down the cost curve faster. Right. But ultimately, uh, we're still on, on pace, on track to have a really cost competitive solution. Um, even without something like the IRA in place. It's really important to have early adopter customers. So some of those uh, partnerships like the Air Force or Mercedes-Benz making the world's first car parts from CO2, some of those early customers uh, really helped to demonstrate interest in the industry for carbon transformation for what we were doing. And yeah, the support early on from the government was key. So initially, it's really hard to raise venture funding for a brand new science idea. Now it's changed a bit. There's a lot of new like climate seed funds. In 2016, when we were, we were going out there, there wasn't so much of that. Um, and so it was really important for us to be able to initially build out a prototype and demonstrate that it worked. So we got a lot of initial funding through the Department of Energy, NASA, National Science Foundation. Um, and that's how we actually were able to first develop the kind of phase one of what we were building. So really important. 
Wow, um, such an inspiring journey, if you think about it. For you personally, did you ever consider, oh, you know what, I need to go back to corporate life? Were there those moments? No, no, I haven't had any of those moments. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's hard work, but it's a, a lot of fun and it's very rewarding. And I feel I mean, aligned. Every hour I spend doing this is working towards something I really care about. So that's I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be working anywhere else. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> um, what is your big vision for 12 in 2030, 2035? What would you have hoped to achieve? So at, the vision would be that this is something that you've heard of. You've been on a flight powered by eJet. You've used a CO2-made product. Uh, that's something that's one of your favorite brands. Maybe your shoes, for example, uh, or maybe the chair you're sitting on is CO2 made. So it's really that kind of ubiquitously in your life. We've actually started to create that transition where things are made from air, not oil. Made from air, not oil. I love that. I think that should be your official tagline. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that will get you very far with the uh, oil lobby, but made from air, not oil. I love it. Um, Looking at aviation still, I'm sure you've been speaking to a lot of airlines, airports. Which airlines and airports do you think are doing a good job of their sustainability efforts and more importantly, communicating these efforts as well? What's important for airlines and corporate partners to really accelerate the adoption of sustainable aviation fuel is to make purchasing in a different way than they buy fuel today. So right now with fossil jet fuel, they buy it one, maybe two years at a time. What you'll see with, and this is not unique to 12, but many sustainable aviation fuel technologies, what we need is a multi-year um, offtake agreement is what it's called. And so if you look and you look at announcements and you see certain airlines uh, making multi-year offtake commitments, that's really important for accelerating the industry because that allows us to go out and build facilities that they can, can then deliver that product over multiple years. That's quite interesting because um, I know exactly what you mean by offtakes and the confidence it gives the industry for long-term growth. But there's, there are critics who say, oh, offtakes don't mean anything because airlines are not putting cash down because they're looking at how fuel is bought today. Um, what do you say to those? It depends on the quality of the offtake agreement. So there are some announcements out there that um, you know don't have a lot of teeth uh, and there's others that are really firm binding commitments. Um, and so sometimes it can be hard to tell from the public releases, but I can tell you there's a lot of airlines that are really serious about this and corporate partners that are really serious about this that are making firm commitments, putting it in their financial plan with an expectation that they're going to get the sustainable aviation fuel. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to more airline announcements uh, for you, Nicholas. The last part of this interview is called the rapid fire round in which we get to know you a bit more personally. I'll ask you simple one line questions and you can reply with short answers. So simple things like what's your favorite airline? I got to say Alaska Airlines is our first customer. <laughs> Do you live in Seattle? I don't. I live in the Bay Area. So we get lots of uh, flights to right. Alaska. Well, soon you might be able to move to Hawaii because they just bought Hawaiian Airlines. I won't complain. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What's your favorite movie? It's a uh, Star Trek First Contact. Okay. All right. Uh, favorite book? Favorite book? Ooh. Um, well, I can tell you I'm reading right now a book called Arsenals of Folly, which was about the buildup of nuclear weapons um, uh, last century and then how we got past that and reduced the stockpiles. Wow. Okay. I was not familiar with that book. Thank you for sharing. I will check it out. What's your favorite city? Uh, I grew up in Ithaca, New York. Uh, and so I'm a big hometown fan. Wow. So that's where Cornell is, right? 
That's right. Yeah. And you've got your own dairy, I hear, and cows. That's right. Yeah. Soup. Really good. Really good milk and ice cream on, on campus. <laughs> that's what I remember. Did you go to Cornell? I did. Yeah. That's where I went for undergrad. Okay. There you go. All right. Fantastic. Um, what is something that you would like to learn? Um, I'd love to learn how to speak Arabic. Okay. Are you working on it? Duolingo or something like that? Uh, initial phases. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, perhaps the deal with Etihad will help. Exactly. It's the motivation. <laughs> exactly. What do you do in your free time, Nicholas? I play ice hockey. You do? Were you part of a team? I am. I actually had a game last night. Okay. Well done. Well, come over to Canada sometime. It's kind of... Yeah, I'll take you, you know, up on the, it. <laughs> the thing. Uh, what's the best advice you've received? Um, to manage your energy, not your time. Um, so if you look at what we've been doing at 12, it's been a seven-year journey so far. Um, if you are sprinting all the time and burning yourself out, then you won't be there for the, the long haul. Um, and so I think that's been really important advice. Fantastic. I love that advice. Um, and final two questions. If you are on an 18-hour long-haul flight, who would you love to be seated next to? Barack Obama. Oh, well done. Good answer. And finally, if we are speaking a year from now and we are popping champagne, what are we celebrating? Oh, that timing will be good. So that we'll, have, we'll be celebrating the world's first regular passenger service on eJet coming out of that plant that we're building in Washington State. Fantastic. Well, I'll, I will keep some champagne handy for that. We Please have do. a very specific date here. <laughs> Nicholas, thank you very much. Really inspiring journey. And I do wish you all the best. Thanks. Really appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sustainability in the Air. Aviation is one of the hardest to decarbonize industries. Yet, there are multiple paths to get to net zero. Awareness is key to a green future. So please give us your support to help our sustainable aviation insights reach a wider audience. You can do this by sharing this episode on your network, on LinkedIn, Twitter, or even WhatsApp. Or perhaps you might consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this episode. You can start a conversation with us by writing to us at podcast at simplifying that's simply with an i.com and for more content on sustainable aviation please visit our website green.simplifying.com and join the movement sustainability in the air is an original podcast by simplifying the show is produced by Uri Toth in Slovakia Dirk Singer is our director of sustainability who leads research for each interviewee out of Greenwich, UK. Shubhadeep Pau is our supervising editor based out of Mumbai and Singapore. The articles are written by Ayushi Badola in Dehradun in India and Mira Hull in Montreal, Quebec. Creative design is led by Lihia Esteve in Montreal. Baiba Dreamen is the project director for the show based out of Valencia, Spain. Special thanks to Wendy Sim in Singapore. And I'm Shashank Nigam, the CEO of Simplifying and your host. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn.